Hello and welcome back to another episode of Creedle. We have not been doing a very good job recently, Andrew, doing a consistent recording schedule here. I think we missed a week in November and then came back for Thanksgiving. And then we missed the last two weeks after that, but we're finally here. We're recording this on the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception. So happy Solemnity to you, Andrew. Happy Solemnity to you to you too, Zach. And it's good to be back together. Likewise. Um, don't have a whole lot uh, of, of sort of pre-discussion banter uh, today, Andrew, but are you a World Cup fan? Have you been watching the World Cup? Oh, man. I'm so glad you brought up the World Cup. Yes, I am all about the World Cup. I'm a big fan of Les Bleus, the mm. French team, Indeed. and I'm very excited to see them... Uh, we're recording this on Thursday. They play England on Saturday afternoon, American time. So really hoping they can uh, they can go far. But there's some really good teams left in there. Man, Portugal just had a, a, a beat down. Six to one, I think, uh, of Switzerland. There. Yeah, six to one. And Ronaldo didn't even start and didn't have a goal. So, man, there's some tough, tough teams. I really, really enjoy it. What about you? Uh, I also enjoy it. I'm not really, uh, I'm not, uh, let me restate that. For most of my life, I have not been a soccer guy. However, I'm actually becoming more interested in the sport because, believe it or not, I have just been coaching my kids' soccer teams. And this is like U6 soccer. It's not highly strategic or even highly competitive, not highly tactical, but it has just gotten me interested more in the sport. And I've thought, hey, as my kids progress in this, because they, they show some promise, uh, I could coach as they get higher and higher. And if I do, I'll have to understand the strategy uh, and the gamesmanship and all of that. So I've just gotten more interested in soccer as we've gone on. I also find it to be just a, a pretty civilized sport compared to uh, you know American football, for example. Uh, and I like that about it. Uh, I also love, I've been looking yeah. for, uh, or I've been sort of valuing sports that I can watch on the TV with kids around. And what I mean by that is they won't cut to commercials that may be inappropriate every three minutes. Yep. So in a football game, baseball game, there's just commercials everywhere, all over the place. Uh, you watch uh, a soccer match or you watch uh, an F1 race, which is another sport I've been getting into over the past year. And they don't have commercials for pretty much the entire time. Now, there could be, you know, if there's a rain delay or whatever, there, there can be commercials at halftime in soccer. But for the most part, it's commercial free minus the little ads on the on the sidelines in a soccer match or on the jerseys, on the cars, whatever. Um, and so I've been really enjoying that. So I have been getting into soccer. And in the World Cup, uh, I was, of course, you know, bandwagon, bandwagoning on the U.S. squad. Uh, that came to a rather uh, ignominious conclusion when they lost to the Netherlands. It last always Saturday. does. Always does. Every time. Yep. 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 Um, unless you're a fan of women's soccer, I guess uh, they uh, they have, they've had a lot more success than the U.S. men's squad, which is which is great. At least we have that going for us in the U.S. soccer program. Um, but uh, I think now I'm kind of going with Croatia. I love an underdog story, you know. And if Croatia could now, Croatia has been to the finals before. I think lost to France, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yep, in the um, last World Cup, yeah, yeah, 2018. So I love, I, but I love that this this tiny you know European nation could potentially go all the way. Now they have, I think their matchup next is with Brazil, which is like the heavyweight favorite going into the World Cup. So it's a, uh, it's you know they have they have a ways to climb and some formidable teams to beat. But yeah, I'm excited for the action. Uh, the the next round I think starting tomorrow, so should be good. Yeah. Croatia has an excellent team. And, uh, you know, just a quick word about the U.S. men's national team. As a patriotic American, I, I feel a certain obligation to support the, the, the American team when they're in the World course, Cup. Yeah. But to be honest with you, I'm really not that interested in them. I really i have always loved both the French team and the German team. And that's sort of related to my own family background as French and German heritage. Um, but whenever they go out of the World Cup, which is usually relatively early, 
I feel a sense of relief, I have to be honest, that kind of the weight of having to kind of care about their success is, is gone. And now I can just really focus on quality yeah. soccer. And as you say, just enjoy it without the commercial breaks and, you know, all of the, the noise, very civilized stuff. I love it. It's my favorite thing. That's great. I love it. Um, I think it was 2002 World Cup. Uh, was that when Germany won or was that 06? No. Um, let's see. Or maybe they were maybe 2002, they were Brazil won. 2006, Italy won over France. 2010, it was Spain. 2014, it was Germany. So 2000, let's see. I think it was 2002. I remember watching this as a kid. And I could be totally misremembering this, but Germany had a goalkeeper who I really liked. Um, and that got me kind of interested in soccer, although it, it sort of flamed out as a kid. I never played competitive soccer. I played other sports, primarily baseball. Mm-hmm. So my, my interest yeah. quickly shifted and pivoted to uh, focus on baseball. Um, but yeah, the World yeah. Cup is fun. I mean, just a global sporting event, elimination style tournament. It's, there, there's little that can top that as far as uh, sporting events around the world. So. Well, cool. I agree. It's the yeah. best. Um, today, we are going to do something a little bit different, Andrew. Uh, this won't be a surprise to you, but it may to some of our readers. We're not going to do our normal uh, segments. Uh, we're going to just have a focused discussion on one specific topic. Uh, the reason why we're not doing these segments is because we really want to sort of carve out some time and attention for this topic because it is such an important one. And the topic is anti-Semitism. Now, why are we talking about anti-Semitism? Well, it's because anti-Semitism has been making a really rapid and startling resurgence uh, over the past. I mean, if you're a real watcher of this stuff, you'd, you'd probably educate me more on how this has really never gone away. And uh, now people are just noticing it more. But from my vantage point, it seems like over the past several years, uh, perhaps the last decade, uh, we've seen a real, a real startling rise in anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic sentiments and anti-Semitic, uh, crimes and in, 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 in anti-Semitic violence and rhetoric. And you and I wanted to just take an entire episode and dedicated it, de- dedicated to this topic so that we can name anti-Semitism for what it is and condemn it wherever it appears. Um, there's really no, there's no two ways about this. Um, anti-Semitism is wrong, obviously. Uh, and it is contrary to everything that the gospel stands for. So every Christian everywhere should condemn every instance of anti-Semitism wherever it appears. Um, there's no way to split the hair uh, and say, yeah, what this person said was anti-Semitic, but they have a point. There is no point with anti-Semitism other than uh, an, an, an immoral and grossly wrong point. And so we want to talk through that. And then uh, in the context of our discussion, we will be talking about Mit Brennen der Zorka, which is the encyclical written in 1937 by Pope Pius XI to uh, the global universal church, as encyclicals are, but in particular to the German bishops and laypeople of the Catholic Church, encouraging them and exhorting them in their walk with Christ, despite the rise and in the midst of the rise of uh, Nazi fascism in Germany. Um, so we'll talk about that and and what the encyclical uh, did and said really well, and also talk about perhaps potentially some shortcomings of the encyclical. But maybe a good way to sort of start this conversation is the Kanye stuff. And you know exactly what I'm talking about, Andrew, because Kanye has been in the news recently for some of his radically anti-Semitic behaviors and sentiments that he has not apologized for nor stood, stood down from. Um, and it's really shocking. I mean, uh, we, can, we, can, we can talk about the Alex Jones interview uh, in particular, but that was, uh, I think, a real sort of um, eye-opening moment for people when they heard Kanye say that, you know, he liked Hitler and Hitler did a lot of good things. So 
maybe I'll just throw it to you here, Andrew. Let's talk about the Kanye stuff real quick and sort of how we got to this point. Yeah, let's do. I'm I'm keen to talk about this for a few reasons. One is I have written about Kanye in the past, um, and uh, I you know I'm not really a big fan of hip hop music exactly, and I didn't follow Kanye's music when he was really first becoming the star that he that he now is. Um, but he did come on my radar eventually, and I have to admit that even though his music isn't my preferred genre. Um, when I, I think the first album I really listened to closely was his 2015 album, Life of Pablo. And the stuff that he does in the studio is, it's just unbelievable. I mean, people who really, who, who don't know his, his music, like don't, maybe just don't really understand like just how extraordinary he is. I mean, his stuff is full of vulgarity and it's weird and stuff like that, but it's also just really incredible. But you know, he then a few years later had this dramatic conversion to Christianity and he produced um, a full-blown gospel album th- with this um, Sunday service choir. And that is an incredible album, by the way, Jesus is Born, it's called. And he made his own Christian album called, I think it's called Jesus is King or something like that. Mm-hmm. But um, and then, but then, you know, but in the midst of all this, his behavior started to get really, really strange. And, you know, there were all, there was all kinds of speculation about his mental state. And he had admitted that he had taken different pharmaceuticals for, um, you know, mental health diagnoses and that sort of thing. So, you know, for a while now, he's definitely been on people's radar as, as a, a worry, right? Well, I wrote this article last year, um, you know, speculating as, as, people sometimes do in the kind of conservative or Catholic or Christian or conservative Catholic Christian space, where if there's somebody really famous who seems to be kind of like getting with the program that you're excited about, um, they become kind of a cheap date. You know, um, we see this a lot, like with certain, maybe certain celebrities or something like that, who, you know, who kind of, we, we then maybe are like too quick to sort of say, oh yes, you want to be one of us. Great. Come join us. Like, come, come be a part of what we're doing. Right. And I admit I maybe was a little bit like that with Kanye. So when all this stuff came out where he, especially the, the thing that you alluded to where he went on this show with, um, this Alex Jones show and was wearing this, this full body or full sort of face and neck covering like a mask or whatever. And, um, just proceeded to say some unbelievably anti-Semitic things. Um, it, it just was such a shock that I just felt personally as somebody who had written somewhat favorably about Kanye that I wanted to say, Hey, this is no good at all. This is, this is not something that, that Christians or conservatives or, or, or anybody out there in the culture can, can give a pass to anymore. And what he said, and maybe you want to add to it more, but I, I was just looking at it again today, but he, he, he literally uttered these words. He said, the Holocaust is not what happened, and Hitler has a lot of redeeming qualities, um, among other things that he said. Now, something that I want to point out is that there is this phenomenon that happens sometimes that Leo Strauss called the reductio ad Hitlerum, where it's like if you say anything, like if you say, oh, you know, I think healthy eating is good. Well, then you're like Hitler because Hitler was a vegetarian. Or if you say like, oh, I think, you know, the highway, the, the, the Autobahn is really wonderful in Germany. Well, then you must be like Hitler because, you know, he's the one who invented it or something like that. Um, but that's, you know, and that, that is something that's really annoying that happens. You know, if anybody expresses any kind of like, you know, this or that or whatever, suddenly it's like, ah, watch out, you're Hitler. Now, that is no good. But what Kanye is doing, this is not a reductio ad Hitlerum to point out what he's saying. 
you know, he's saying things that are, that are just completely unacceptable, um, that are, uh, yes, perhaps the ravings of somebody who is in a deep, a deep, uh, in a, in a deeply dark place mentally, like suffering from mental illness. But it also, to my mind, Zach, I don't know if you agree, belies a malice too. Um, that is, it, I don't think is entirely attributable to, um, just having a mental break. And part of the evidence I would suggest for this is that he, he seems to be spending time with this young man named Nick Fuentes, I think his name is, who is this twerp who does these internet videos, I guess, about, you know, why the Holocaust didn't happen or something. I really don't know. I didn't know anything about him. Um, or if I did, I didn't remember ever knowing about him before this stuff happened with Kanye. But it's deeply disturbing because Kanye West is one of the most famous people on the planet Earth. He is. And, you know, this statistic to me really stood out. Uh, there are about 15 million Jewish people in the world. And Kanye had 31 million Twitter followers. So, I mean, just his Twitter following alone is twice as big as the number of Jews on the planet Earth. So for him to sort of, you know, to be singling out that group, which already has such a long history of being singled out, persecuted, and murdered, is um, it, it's just no good. So I'll throw it back to you, Zach, see if you want to add anything. Uh, well, first of all, I agree with everything that you just said. Um, yeah, this Nick Fuentes character, I've heard of, I've heard about him like associated with the alt-right at various times. I think I saw one clip from several years ago of him uttering one of these sort of Holocaust denial statements and really sort of making fun of the Holocaust. He just seems like a despicable character all around. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it wasn't just that Kanye was, was, uh, or has surrounded himself with people like him, including Nick Fuentes himself, but, um, Kanye went to dinner with president Trump and brought Nick Fuentes in tow. So that created a whole, a whole scene. And the Trump camp has said that, you know, Nick Fuentes was a personality previously unknown to Trump. So, you know, he didn't know who it was, et cetera. I wouldn't have agreed to the dinner if he did, et cetera. I mean, whatever. Uh, the point is, um, there's a really high profile, uh, one of the most pro high profile music, musical artists of all time, who's now espousing these crazy anti-Semitic sentiments. And, uh, you know, when, and while he's doing this, went and had dinner with a, the former president of the United States. I mean, it's just a really bad, really bad look that, that will and has undoubtedly given credence to some of these, these uh, horrific ideas. Um, I mean, it's crazy too, that 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 interview that you talked about where he's wearing that sort of full like facial bodysuit thing. I mean, just first of all, bizarre, but he's, he's, he's out, he's out sort of performing Alex Jones, like Alex Jones, the performance shock artist um, is now being actually like outdone by someone on his show. Because Kanye said, I like the, the clip that I saw, Kanye said, I like Hitler. And Alex Jones said, I, I don't like Hitler. I know you're just trying to be provocative. And Kanye was like, no, I'm not. I'm not trying to be provocative. I really do like Hitler. And I think that's when he said he has a lot of redeeming qualities. That's the only clip yeah. that I saw from that show. It was making the rounds on Twitter. Uh, and that was enough for me to just be like, what in the what, what has happened to this guy? This is crazy. I do. think. Yeah, you're, yeah go ahead. He even. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, just to add to that, there, I, I forgot this part. Before he says the thing about um, the Holocaust didn't happen that way or whatever, you know, Alex Jones pushes him on this, like, what do you mean you like Hitler or something like that? You know, and he says, look, I like all people. I love all people and, you know, blah, 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 and all this sort of thing. And then he lands the plane with that. Because there you think, well, maybe he's going to, maybe he's going to kind of weasel through a little bit here and like, okay, yeah, he said something really awful, but like maybe there will be a way to kind of nuance it. I mean, I, I, I don't want to nuance it, but maybe somebody could. But he lands the plane in that, in that segment by saying, you know, he says, I love all people, especially Hitler. 
um, which is just just bonkers. And then later in the interview, he says, you know, I brought I brought Netanyahu with me, meaning the prime minister of Israel. And he brings out a net, like a like a uh, fishing net or oh something, and a bottle of Yuhu, like the drink Yuhu net and Yuhu. And he starts playing, doing like almost this little puppet show with the net and the Yuhu. And wow. I mean, there again, yeah, you see the the very high likelihood of like a serious mental illness, but yeah. you also see this what you said, this sort of outperforming kind of the, the most shock oriented kind of, you know, personality. Um, and and it's all, and it's all bad. Like, okay, fine. Maybe we're living in the, you know, we're living in the late empire here and everything is just absurd and everything's crumbling or something like that. I don't know. And maybe, you know, one, maybe there's some hot take out there that says this is all just this sort of absurd performance of the of the decadent society but but no like as you say there are like actual instances of of anti-semitic violence and stuff like that um and and we just you know we just we just really need to watch out for this i'm I'm not necessarily talking about like closing down someone's ability to to say offensive things but i am saying people need to call this stuff out and i would just add this one last thing to say to circle back to my my thing about people like Kanye being a sort of cheap date for for the right wing, um, there's certainly left wing anti-Semitism too, and always has been. But in this instance, I think it's very important that the right, the right wing, own this and say, "Look, we have this problem on the fringes of our of our movement, and it's manifesting itself in this way with Kanye right now, and that's unacceptable. We're not having that." Now, if the left has that problem in other instances, they need to do that too. But I think in this instance, it's important that more conservative minded people say, hey, nope, we're not going there. Yeah, I completely agree with that as well. At your point about the sort of cheap date idea is a really important one. I think it's, it's, it tends to be the case, and it's probably just human nature, right? But it tends to be the case when a prominent person changes their mind and comes over to your side of the, 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 the issue, you tend to get really excited about that. And potentially, often raise this person up as some sort of, you know, some sort of idol, some sort of hero to celebrate, some sort of celebrity to follow. That definitely was the case with Kanye. I can think of a ton of a ton of personalities now who have uh, been, you know, so you know, quote quote unquote, red pilled, right? Come over to the right side from the left, and then they get held up as a as a model of everything you should be. Um, and that's just simply in the vast majority of cases, not the case, right? Um, but to do it specifically with these like very high profile celebrities who are um, clearly going through something is, is particularly unwise. But to your point as well about uh, like needing to sort of own this and then condemn it, I do think that's also uh, something that is lacking uh, on the American right these days. Um, there are lots of American, uh, of leaders on the American right who say, yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely not good. We don't like that. But they won't say, like, I clearly condemn anti-Semitism and I do not want any support from supporters of anti-Semitism because that is an unconscionable um, uh, ideology and I just outright reject it, um, period. Now, I, I, like, there, there are some who say that. I'm not saying that never happens, but I do think that um, there is this growing problem in the American right of anti-Semitism. And so I think it's important to name it and to you know, to, to condemn it. Like, like we're trying to do today, not that we are, you know, thought leaders on the American right by any means. Uh, but just that I think it's important to say, Hey, we need to talk about this. This is a real problem. Um, and we need to stop. We, we, you know, because, because people are getting hurt, people are getting killed. 
Um, and just simply, you know, even more foundational than that, it's just the wrong thing to do. I was looking up some data, uh, did not get a chance to read through this carefully, but the Anti-Defamation League uh, found 2,717 incidents of anti-Semitic behaviors in 2021. Uh, and according to this PBS report, that's a 34% rise from the year before. Uh, and if you do, if you crunch the numbers on 2,700, that's more than seven attacks uh, or seven incidents per day. Um, so this is a real problem. This is not simply anecdotal. This is, you know, this is this this type of rhetoric has real consequences, and the problem is only getting worse. I mean, I think you and I can probably think of uh, numerous instances just in the past year of um, attacks on synagogues in major cities in America, um, uh, and it's 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 crazy to think about that being something that happens uh, ever, uh, but you know, let alone several times a year. So yeah, this this type of rhetoric has real consequences. Um, and violent consequences uh, for for the Jewish people, who, by the way, it, throughout their history, have been through so much. Um, you know, not least the Holocaust. Um, that's the most flagrant and the most recent example of the you know atrocities perpetuated against the Jewish, Jewish people. But it's it's one in a long line um, of atrocities um, against the Jewish people. So I think we need to be you know particularly careful about calling out and condemning instances of anti, of anti semitism wherever they exist. Yeah. And as you say, for, as you alluded to earlier, um, it's also just unacceptable theology for anyone who calls himself or herself a Christian. Um, Anti-Semitism has no place in, in Christianity. And not only because, you know, we are now kind of more illuminated or something like that in our minds about, you know, um, not blaming Jews for you know, not 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 like holding a theory of like blood guilt about uh, the crucifixion of Christ or something like that, but because Christianity is, I mean, Christians are redeemed by the Messiah of Israel, right? So, I mean, yes. to to have a problem with Jewish people per se, right, is to deny Christianity, right? I mean, Jesus is a Jew in heaven, right? Like we're the world is saved by by the people of Israel. I mean, that that's, yep. goes back to Genesis 12, right? Um, so, uh, and this is something that, uh, you know, when we, when we get into the, to the encyclical text here, um, this is something that Pius XI is getting at, but, um, but the church, I think, has articulated even more strongly since then. Um, but I mean, it's right there in the Bible, right? I mean, reading St. Paul, reading, reading the letter to the Romans, right? Um, it's not a break. It's a continuation. Yes. Um, I mean, this was, you know, one of the great heresies of the early church was, um, uh, what, you know, well, various forms of just trying to break apart uh, Judaism and Christianity. And it strangely keeps coming back, right? Yeah. Like there are, there are varieties of Christianity that want to kind of maybe universalize too much without focusing on the kind of Jewishness that then, that then universalizes. Um, and then there are, there are other types that just want to be kind of new Testament religion rather than thinking of the one promise of God to the world, which comes to the world through the people of Israel. So I don't know, we're getting in the weeds a little bit with that. Maybe we can look at the text and see where that pops up. But, um, you know, Con the, the last thing about this, when Kanye was making these ravings, he had a, he, he was, a Bible was sitting in front of him the entire time, which is um, not only then um, hateful and um, just kind of, you know, unacceptable from a, you know, a historical perspective with regard to this one particular people, but it's also a blasphemy. Yeah. 
um, to to be sort of saying these things with the Bible there in view, as if this is sort of a, a Christian man with his Christian authority in front of him. Yeah, I don't think it's a side. I don't think it's a. It's, I don't think we're getting too bogged down in details at all. I mean, I think as 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 you and I are professing Catholic Christians, I think we need to be super clear on that that this is not something that that Catholic or Christian theology has any room for whatsoever. I have a friend named um, Chris Stroop who did his PhD um, uh, in Boston at uh, Boston University, I think it is. Um, and he, after doing his, his uh, master's in theology at Yale, and uh, he wrote his dissertation in, uh, on, on early, early Christianity, the early history of Christianity. And when it became a book, he named it The Christians Who Became Jews because the idea was precisely, and you see this happening in the book of Acts, the first Christians are, of course, Jews. I mean, they're they're practicing Jews, like Saint Paul, like all of the disciples, every single one of the disciples. Uh, and as they go around the world and evangelize, those people who become Christians and start proclaiming the name of Jesus take on the Jewish customs and traditions. So these are these are, you know, formerly pagans who become Christians and then who sort of become Jewish because they adapt all of the 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 things um, of the Jewish world. And so that is our, that's our heritage. I mean, the, the patristic era uh, was one that was, that was Jewish. And so, uh, yeah. you know, not only is it bad theology and contrary to the word of God to embrace any of these, any of these views, it's, um, it's simply nonsensical because our own heritage itself is Jewish. We only have Christianity because of the Jews. This, the Jews are God's chosen people, God's covenant people. Um, and they are, as uh, Nostra Aetate, for example, points out, and we might talk about that as well in the Second Vatican Council, uh, a special part of God's plan for the salvation of the world, uh, more so than any other right. people. Um, so anti-Semitism is, is a particular, you know, all, all the sort of isms are bad, but anti-Semitism is, is a particular inversion, I think, of the, or perversion of the gospel because it, it, it forgets that. It forgets that crucial link that, and, and it denies that crucial part of God's plan. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want to transition into the, into the in, encyclical, I'll just, you know, as a, as a quick foretaste, because I know you want to give some background, but one of the big points that is made in the encyclical, especially towards the beginning, is that um, the problem in Germany is in a sense that they are, that, that Nazi ideology is paganism. Yeah. You know, that it is, it is really, you know, Christianity I mean, they really are trying to destroy Christianity. Um, and that is um, maybe a, maybe a, as big a project, in a sense, as eradicating the Jewish people. Um, it, it's, I mean, maybe not in terms of the lives that may be lost or something like that. But I mean, yeah. it, it's, um, it, it isn't, in other words, just that the Nazis are interested in a variety of Christianity that you know, doesn't highlight Judaism very much. You know, they're just barely tolerating any practice of Christianity until they can really just wash over the whole of society with a kind of state worship, race worship, um, kind of idealization of the people, right? Of yes. this like Germanic ideal. Yeah, completely agree. Uh, yeah, how about I do just paint a little bit of a picture of what's happening in, uh, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the Catholic Church in Germany in the 1930s that led to this encyclical. Uh, and I am drawing, um, for some of this overview, I'm drawing on the work of Alexandra Valdez. I will, I can't actually, I found this PDF um, by, Alex, by Alexandra that was, I think, written in the early 2000s or the mid, the mid aughts of the 2000s, about 15 years ago. And I can't find, it looks like it was published in some sort of journal, but I can't find any, um, any listing of the information there. 
except the journal name, which I think is Elements. Uh, I have not heard of it otherwise, but this article is on uh, Mitbrennen de Zorga, uh, an exegesis on the encyclical to the Third Reich. And um, she dives into some of the sort of key questions around it, what it tried to accomplish. But she starts, and I think it's really important to, to, to provide this context, uh, with 1933, when uh, the Catholic Church and the the Third Reich create this uh, Reichskonkordat, like this, this, this Reich agreement. Uh, and in that agreement, um, the Catholic Church gets some concessions and the uh, the Nazis get some concessions. And, and what the Nazis tell the Catholics is, look, you can keep your Catholic schools open, you can keep your churches open, uh, you can keep your bishops. And what the Catholic Church cedes to the Nazis is basically, um, we will we will require, or it's okay if we it's okay if you require you Nazis require the uh, German bishops to swear an oath of allegiance to the Third Reich. Now, this I'll just pause right here. This is just inconceivable to me, uh, Andrew. I mean, the fact that we would make this agreement, that the church would make this agreement is just is just horrific. That they would allow the bishops to make any oath of allegiance to any secular state power, uh, especially as a requirement to becoming a bishop in Germany uh, or remaining a bishop in Germany. So absolutely crazy. But then I think about how uh, this actually has some comparisons, I think, to um, what the Vatican has done in the past several years with the uh, with China, with the Chinese Communist Party. A very similar arrangement. Okay, don't close our churches. You know, don't persecute our people. Uh, you can select the bishops, Chinese Communist Party. Just let us know who you want. We'll just sort of have veto authority on who the bishops will be, but you can choose them. Um, and I hope, yeah. uh, you know, I suspect that I'm wrong, or I suspect I, I'm probably not wrong, uh, but I, I hope this won't happen, but I suspect it will, that the Catholic Church will also find herself coming to a time of reckoning in China, and it'll probably be sooner rather than later. Um, because communism and- Could well be. Yeah, go ahead, sorry. No, go, no, you finish. Oh. Yeah. Well, it's the just it's just the case that, important. yeah, I mean, uh, radical, non-religious ideologies like fascism, like communism, do not commingle with the Catholic Church in, you know, because of these these claims, uh, the, these sort of conflicting claims that we'll talk through with with Mit Brendan der Zorga today, uh, that, the, that these, they make mutually exclusive claims, right? What the Catholic Church says and what the Chinese Communist Party or what the Nazis say are not possibly true simultaneously. Um, and so, you know, I just want to yeah. make that comment about the the plight of the church in China as well right now, because I think the Vatican has been very unwise and imprudent in how it has gone about that. And it has cheapened the gospel and is kicking a can down the road that it will have to, you know, it will come to rue the day, I think, eventually. I could be wrong and would love to be wrong, but I, I suspect I'm not. I think you're probably right. I just wanted to add that, um, you know the the concordat with with the third reich was you know probably the most you know shameful and notorious one that uh, that the catholic church had entered into up to that point but it had had other concordats with other with mm -hmm. other powers in the past and one of the most famous ones was with napoleon um, there was the i mean they even called it l'église gallicaine the gallican church because they basically made the same arrangement with with napoleon that the the bishops had to be essentially like um, uh, allied with with the the bonaparte um, empire. So, uh, I mean, the church, I mean, it's, it's ensconced right in so many of these worldly things. I mean, it, it, it is this, this power and, you know, in a sense, like, well, I mean, we'll get into it, but I mean, I, I guess like the, you know, the, the, the Pope is saying in the encyclical that, yeah, we, we weren't happy about that arrangement at all, but we decided we really needed to do it for the sake of the souls of the people of our, of, of the Catholics of Germany, you right. know? Um, I mean, maybe in the background is also the, the thought that 
you know, they, they themselves could get, I mean, you know, who knows? I mean, maybe German tanks were going to roll into Vatican City or something like that. I mean, there, there are all kinds of practical concerns as well, but the spiritual one is the one that they, that, that the Pope flags in the, in the encyclical. Well, as, as, um, as imprudent and unwise as the Concordat was, uh, it wasn't necessarily indefensible, right? I mean, I think something can be an inconceivably bad idea and still be defensible, right? There's, there's some sort of rationale for it. And so the Pope and his key advisors clearly rationalized and, and weighed the pros and cons and thought that they could do a better job protecting the church in Germany with this concordat in place. But, but obviously, by the time, by 1937, so after this has been in place for three and a half years, early 1937, uh, it's evident that's not the case, right? That uh, actually the Catholic Church in Germany is still being persecuted. Uh, one example of this is that um, while it was officially the case that people could still belong to the church, Nazism was just crowding it out. And so there was a rule that basically, you know, a young person, a youth could not be in, you know, more than one organization at a time. Uh, and they could belong to their church and their sort of church, their, their parish activities, societies, their school, whatever, or they could belong in the Hitler youth. Um, and so by, by sort of making it so that they had to choose one or the other, they would effectively sort of crowd out the church. Um, and so they were not, they were not upholding the spirit of the law if they were upholding the letter of the law of the Concordat at all. And so this becomes a problem, and in 1935, the German bishops draw up a document to Hitler and basically say, like, look, this, you're attacking us, you're doing what you said you wouldn't do, this is not sustainable, this is a big problem. They get no reply. So then they appeal to Rome in 1936, I think it is, and then it's in 1937, in early 1937, March, um, that Pope Pius XI writes this encyclical. And for all the criticism that I just gave uh, the Vatican about the the Reichskonkordat. Uh, I will say that this encyclical uses some pretty strong language that does not at all shy away from the truth of the gospel. Uh, and we can talk about that. We will talk about that. And it's, it's really, there's some really wonderful turns of phrase in here um, that I cannot imagine reading in a modern encyclical. And that kind of saddens me that, that, we, we, that our, our popes have, have shied away, perhaps in many instances, from sort of boldly proclaiming the gospel as this one does. However, I will also add that this encyclical does probably not do enough at naming and condemning the anti-Semitism that it saw. Now, encyclicals in general tend to be written in generalities. So even if, if you pick up, um, you know, Pope Francis encyclical, um, he does not name individual people and individual nations. He talks about sort of trends and things that we've seen and abuses, uh, but he doesn't say this person is really evil and, or this nation is, is falling prey to this ideology. So it's the general tone of encyclicals that they are general. Um, but with that said, uh, anti-Semitism has been named in other church documents, and it is still, I mean, anti-Semitism as a, as a force, as an ideology, is still a very broad concept, and I think this encyclical certainly could have and should have named anti-Semitism and specifically condemned it. There is, um, there is a draft encyclical called Humani Generis Unitas, uh, which means the unity of the human race in uh, Latin. And that was drafted by Pope Pius XI in 1939, uh, or in 1938, I think. But then he died. And it, at least according to, to one source, um, Pope Pius XI uh, died with that encyclical on his desk, potentially going to, do, going to publish it very soon. And that would have been on the eve of, um, on the eve of you know, general uh, continental-wide war breaking out in Europe. Um, and that contains some very strong language about anti-Semitism. Sadly, Pope Pius XII... Um, did not publish that encyclical. Uh, I don't know his reasons for doing that, but you know, 
his 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 refusal to publish it or his choice, his decision to not publish it, has provided at least some fodder for historians to you know claim that this pope was. Uh, you know, Hitler's Pope in the words of that, uh, I forget the historian who wrote the book named Hitler's Pope on Pius XII. But um, anyway, it's a small digression. Uh, I just think that Mitbrenner de Zorga should have been, could have been more direct in naming and condemning anti-Semitism. It says a lot of really, really good things that we can talk about, but I think it could have gone farther on that specific uh, issue, Andrew. Yeah, that's probably true. I mean, it does, it does like highlight the importance of, uh, and the sacredness of the old Testament, right. And sort of the, uh, God's revelation, uh, to, you know, to Israel. Um, so it's like a kind of reminder that that's, that's part of our faith, you know? Um, and then there's a lot in the, in the encyclical about, um, criticizing the, the, um, the, the Nazi, um, kind of obsession with the myth of race and blood and um and certainly makes it clear that christianity um can never take a back seat to uh a kind of race or um kind of like ideology oriented statism yeah um which is which is um very welcome you know uh at at that time and very i would imagine like very risky to to put in there. I mean, as we know, maybe you're going to say something about it, but um, you know, the the uh, the encyclical had to be printed in a clandestine way and um, distributed secretly, and it was read in churches on Palm Sunday in 1937. And there was a, a significant backlash. I mean, Hitler was furious about it. Yep. And um, you know, he didn't shut the churches down, but uh, definitely things didn't get any easier for Catholics in Germany in the German Empire after that time. Yeah, I think you you hit hit on something that's important to note that this it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't use the word, you know, if you do a word find in this encyclical for Jewish, Judaism, anti-Semitism, you won't find it. But it does have very thinly veiled allusions to it and condemnations of that. So like you said, you know, condemn, condemning a, a racial ideology, for example, we're talking about the um the origins of the scriptures and the old covenant. I mean, all of these things are very thinly veiled. Um uh, and so I think, you know, there's, there's probably, there's probably some sort of prudential argument for, for doing that. And, and, um, and I'm sure Pius 11th had, you know, what he thought were good reasons. I don't know that I agree with those reasons, uh, or I don't think I agree with those reasons right now today. Um, but I, I don't, I don't deny that he had good intentions in sort of not naming that the way he, he didn't. Um, the, the other thing to point out is that this was not a document written for the benefit of the Jewish people. The intention of this document was to protect the Catholic church in Germany. And so right. the thrust of it is not to tell the Nazis all the things they're doing wrong and it just happened to omit anti-Semitism. The thrust of it actually was to teach the Catholic bishop and priest and layman what exactly the truth of the gospel is and exhort uh, him or her to be faithful to the gospel at all costs because it is the, it is the only thing uh, that is true to the end and all other competing ideologies um, will fail. Uh, and so I think on that yeah. point, you know, since it was trying to do that, I think it did a phenomenal job at doing it again. You know, I think it could have, could have been more direct on the anti-Semitism piece, but if you, if you read it intentionally and you, um, and you're understanding what it's saying, uh, you cannot come away from it thinking this is, this is promoting or looking blindly at the anti-Semitic violence that's rising in Germany at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it is a, it's interesting how it's a reminder to the faithful, uh, on two, maybe just to build on what you said on two important points. One is 
to remind the faithful that what what the pope calls aggressive paganism that the the this like um racist nationalism is not compatible with the gospel that you cannot square the two right so it's it's saying to the people like if there was ever any doubt about that please know now it will not work don't try to do it yep right and it even says something like there are people i forget where it is but it's like it almost says something like there are people who are going to get swept up in this Mm -hmm. and we sort of can only pray that like once they experience the devastation that's going to come that they will i think he even uses the word nostalgia that they will that they will feel a certain like ache to return home to the faith you know and in a sense it's kind of an encouragement to the people that it's like look you're going to see your brothers and sisters in christ it'll get worse before it gets better fall fall under the spell of this of this horrible ideology yep um, but please don't, if you, if you don't have to, and that may require you to die. Um, but two, have hope that some of the brothers and sisters will be able to, t- to return. But the second point is more practical, which is reminding the German people, German Catholics that, and you've alluded to this already, but reminding the German Catholics that, that the Reich has reneged on its part in the Concordat, that they've taken away the schools, that they've, they've, they've done, they, they've basically taken away the structures of life that Catholics for centuries have depended upon in Germany. And they just want to like point that out, that like you're living in a different reality now, Catholics of Germany. Like the, the faith that you're allowed to practice now is not, you, you really don't have freedom. You know, you are, you're, you're being asked to, for now, silo this in the most individualistic way imaginable and not let it spill out in any other way, not to let the truth shine out. Yep. And this is just not what the church teaches. It's just not, it's what, what, it, what is being allowed is not the real deal and don't accept it. Yeah. Um, I think maybe I can just give a quick overview of the outline here um, of the encyclical. And then we can go from there. Um, it's got this, of course, introduction here, and it's 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 being written to the um, German faithful. Um, and then it has this sort of um, middle section talking about faith and where our faith comes from, and then it has an appeal to the um, to the theological origins of morality and how only those can fulfill and will guide society. Uh, and then it has sort of a closing address to to youth, to priests, and to the lady. Um, I found the first section, Andrew, to be perhaps the most compel- compelling, um, and it's, it's it's all these sections on um, Reiner Glaube, uh, like pure or unadulterated faith. And so there's um, Reiner Gottes Glaube, uh, pure faith in God. There's um, Reiner Christus Glaube, uh, faith in Christ, obviously. Kirchen Glaube, faith in the church. And then, what's the last one? Um, it has to do with the uh, the the Pope, basically the, un- the unity in the church and, and faithfulness to the Pope. Um, and uh, some of these, I want to read a few of these, uh, these things here because I was reading this the other night and I was just like, I, I was telling Sally, I was like, Sally, you got to listen to this. I mean, imagine this, imagine this being written um, by a, uh, by a bit, by a Pope today, because this is just, it is so hard hitting. Um, and it, it does not, it does not pull any punches. Um, here's section 17. The peak of the revelation, this is in the Christus Glaube section, I believe. The peak of the revelation as reached in the gospel of Christ is final and permanent. 
It knows no retouches by human hand. It admits no substitutes or arbitrary alternatives, such as certain leaders pretend to draw from the so-called myth of race and blood. To your point uh, earlier, Andrew, about about uh, condemning these, these race-based ideologies. Since Christ, the Lord's anointed, finished the task of redemption, and by breaking up the reign of sin, deserved for us the grace of being the children of God, since that day, no other name under heaven has been given to men whereby we must be saved. No man, where every science, power, and worldly strength incarnated in him, can lay any other foundation but that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. I mean, that's, that's amazing. Isn't that so good? Yeah, that's strong stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and in the, in the next paragraph, you know, there, there's more of the same. There's this wonderful line that says, The church's maternal heart is big enough to see in the God-appointed development of individual characteristics and gifts more than a mere danger of divergency. Um, you know, it's really calling, calling Christians to be brave in its, um, in, in its witness, uh, which, you know, really can't can't allow for any any loyalties that that supersede it yeah and there's a after this these sort of reflections on true faith there's um there's another section that basically warns against um the replacement of of uh sacred words and concepts you know basically it's sort of an appropriation of the sacredness of our words and concepts in the faith by these secular ideologies and in particular obviously the target is is nazism um but warning people about exactly that, that there are, there are people among you, there are wolves among the sheep who are trying to set themselves or their own ideologies up as the arbiters of truth. They're trying to uh, convince you that you have to abandon what is true here and sort of profess your fealty toward, to the, the Nazi state. Uh, and, they're, and they're completely wrong. There's another, let, let me, um, if you have anything to add, let me look this up while you find it, but I want to Find another section to read, uh, Andrew. So, if you have something to respond to um, what I just said, go I thought it. section twenty-three was really good. Were you were you near that? Um, uh, it says uh, you will need to watch carefully, venerable brethren, that religious fundamental concepts be not emptied of their content and distorted go. to profane use. That's it. Yep. Um, you know, talking about this idea, this uh, false coins of this sort do not deserve Christian currency. Um, you know, this is this is a this is a big idea that transcends this specific context even. I mean, this is the kind of thing that, that George Orwell is going to be interested in. Um, the idea of like, what you know, if you manipulate language, um, you, take a, you take a word that has one, you know, that has one, one meaning and then you contort it into another, it ends up potentially having the opposite meaning, you know? And this yes. is something that, that the Pope is really encouraging the faithful to be vigilant about. Um, you know, don't don't let the Nazis co-opt our words uh, or our concepts or our symbols. I also wanted to look at uh, or mm-hmm. just read aloud uh, section twenty-six, and I don't know if this is a reference to the swastika, um, because the the swastika obviously at the center it is a cross. I think the like the actual design may have its origins perhaps in um, Hindu spirituality. I'm not even totally sure yes. on that. Um, but at the center, you know, there is a there is a cross. There are two perpendicular lines. Um, so this may be what is referenced here in section 26. I don't know, but section 26 reads the cross of Christ, though it has become to many a stumbling block and foolishness remains for the believer, the holy sign of his redemption, the emblem of moral strength and greatness. We live in its shadow and die in its embrace. It will stand on our grave as a pledge of our faith and our hope in the eternal light. I mean, that, that gives me chills. That's remarkable. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And I mean, it's all the more remarkable because, I mean, that was the symbol that was the the focal point of European civilization for centuries and centuries. Yeah. And Hitler invented one. He invented a new, he invented a mythology for his people. You know, they're Christian people. And he invented this, this Aryan thing with this symbol that he was able to kind of hoodwink people with. Um, I think that I think that that is that that section is there a sort of a call back to the power of Christian symbolism. And and while we're in this area, just real quick, section twenty four is really interesting, where the Pope talks about the immortality of um, the immortality of empire. Essentially, um, uh, he says immortality in a Christian sense means the survival of man after his terrestrial death for the purpose of eternal reward or punishment. Um, Whoever only means by the term the collective survival here on earth of his people for an indefinite length of time distorts one of the fundamental notions of the Christian faith and tampers with the very foundations of the religious concept of the universe, which requires a moral order. I think that's a, a direct critique of Hitler's um, thousand-year Reich, right? The thousand-year, the thousand-jährige yes. Reich, right? Um, that. I mean, a thousand years is still a drop in the bucket, right? I mean, empires rise and empires fall, um, and the the church, you know, the the Pope is here saying, don't don't pay any attention to this, like, you know, highfalutin language about how long this people is going to be great. You know, these individuals are going to die, and what's going to be the state of their their mortal souls, right? It doesn't matter how long this empire lasts. Um, don't listen to these people. Yeah, I completely agree, and um, I would also add. You know, one thing that distinguishes this from, from, for example, from a um, encyclical that may in the future one day be written to uh, Catholics in China, for example, um, the Communist Party of China is uh, objectively hostile to religion, right? And this is like following the long tradition of um, of Karl Marx. Um, there was there was not the same sort of. Uh, I mean, there was an objective hostility, but there was not necessarily a subjective hostility to religion. Uh, in the Third Reich, and what I mean by that is Hitler himself frequently identified as a Christian. Uh, in a 1928 speech, he said, "Our movement is Christian." Um, he started a group called the German Christians uh, as like a sort of subset within Protestantism of basically a bunch of pro-Nazi, you know, quote Christians. And so he was very skilled um, at presenting himself as a sheep. You know, he was a wolf in sheep's clothing, but he was obviously pre- presenting a counterfeit gospel. And so the challenge to the Catholics, I think the challenge that this encyclical is in part trying to solve or trying to meet is that the Catholics and Christians of all stripes in Germany are being wooed by someone who says, hey, I'm one of you and here's the true way. Uh, And the true way comes through, you know, through race and through blood. But this is our our German calling to usher in the thousand year Reich. And this is actually sort of true religion, even more pure than yours. Uh, which is, I think, why uh, the encyclical uses exactly that language of of pure religion, of you know, unadulterated religion, because it's not about unadulterated race, it's not about unadulterated um, national cause, it's not about unadulterated loyalty to the state. It's actually about unadulterated faith to Christ, regardless of yeah. um, regardless of uh, of race and sex and blood and all of that. Um, so I think that's actually a really interesting um, point to think about, because as it relates to us today, um, I think. These these anti-Semitic voices are coming from people who are ostensibly Christians, right? Like Kanye, uh, I have no idea about this this Fuentes character and what you know what he proclaims, but I would not at all be in the least surprised, Andrew, if he claims to be 
a Christian, you know, and, and some sits, kind of Christian. Yeah, yeah. Sits, sits at the Bible on his desk and, and spouts this um, vitriol as well. So uh, there are, there remain wolves among the sheep pretending to be sheep and saying, you know, follow me. Yeah. I am the way. Uh, they are not the way. Jesus yeah, Christ and, is the way. Right. And uh, just to just to follow up your point with just a real quick quote from the text itself, in section seven, the Pope says, the believer in God is not he who utters the name in his speech, but he for whom this sacred word stands for a true and worthy concept of the divinity. I mean, that that's obviously a critique of Hitler. Yes, I mean, his clearly. speech, right? Yep. I mean, that's what it's all about, yep. right? Um, and, and that's right. That's the kind of thing to to watch out for. Now, with all of that in mind, there are a couple places in the text where the Pope isn't like condemning national pride per se, or isn't condemning the idea of a nation per se, right. um, isn't condemning the idea of even a kind of, you know, and maybe we would even take a little issue with this, but even a little bit of a pride in a, in a people, you know, or, or a desire to sort of be a people or something like that, that, that gets a little dicey when we're talking about, you know, a society that has different kinds of people in it, which Germany, Germany did. Um, but, but it is this, it is this sort of, um, uh, it, it, it is this, it, it is this departure from, uh, the basics of the gospel mm-hmm. and the, the kind of the fundamental, uh, the fundamental truth of the gospel, which should animate the hearts of the people and orient them towards charity and towards, you know, uh, towards love of neighbor. Yes, exactly. That's uh, section 34, by the way, I think is what you're talking about. He says, no one would think of preventing young Germans establishing a true ethnical community in a noble love of freedom and loyalty to their country. That might be the line that you said is sort of potentially objectionable. But what he says is what we object to is the voluntary and systematic antagonism raised between national education and religious duty. That is why we tell the young, sing your hymns to freedom, but do not forget the freedom of the children of God. Do not drag the nobility yeah. of that freedom in the mud of sin and sensuality. He who sings hymns of loyalty to this terrestrial country should not, for that reason, become unfaithful to God and his church or a deserter and traitor to his heavenly country. Yeah, I had that that line underlined and starred and exclamation pointed. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, well, I think we, we uh, are just about out of time here, Andrew, but is there anything else that we should we should address in, in our closing, either about Ms. Brennan der Zorga or... Um, other things. I mean, maybe this actually may be a good time to bring in some some thoughts from uh, Nostra Aetate, which I know you've you've reread recently. Yeah, well, just for our listeners, if they don't know Nostra Aetate, just really quickly here. I mean, this is the um, this is the document from Vatican II, um, uh, which is called a Declaration on the Relation of the Church to Non Christian Religions, right? And um, this is the place where the Church does formally and finally. Um, condemn, you know, very clearly condemn anti-Semitism. Um, it uh, repeals any any previous notion that the church believed in blood guilt for the Jews, that namely all Jewish people are guilty of the crime of crucifying Christ. The church says, nope, we don't, we don't believe that. Um, and, and it's this, any more obviously than like, than all of us as humans are, are guilty of it. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes the point that like, yes, of course they were, you know, I mean, we know the story, we can read it in the Bible, yeah. right? There's the, there's the Sanhedrin there, you know, there are definitely people who are involved in handing Jesus over, but it doesn't mean the Jews or right. Jewish people in general for a whole lot of reasons. The most important of which being, as you said earlier, the first Christians were Jews, yep. right? I mean, so it's not the Jews who were responsible. I mean, the Jews, some of them were the Christians themselves. Right. Exactly. So, you know, I digress on that, but 
it's a it's a very uh, a very carefully sort of um, argued argued thing here about uh, the revelation of Christian truth that goes all the way back to Israel and the Old Testament and all that sort of thing. And the discussion ends with this line right here. In her rejection of every persecution against any man, the church, mindful of the patrimony she shares with the Jews, and moved not by political reasons, but by the gospel's spiritual love, decries hatred, persecutions, displays of anti-Semitism directed against Jews at any time and by anyone. Period. If anyone ever says the Catholic Church does not explicitly condemn anti-Semitism, point them right there. Yes, the church does. Yep. It is not Christian to be anti-Semitic. Good note to end on, I think, Andrew. Yeah, I think um, the reason why we want to do this episode and the reason why it has a more serious tone than many of our episodes is because this is a serious topic. And Andrew and I are both concerned about the rise of anti-Semitism not simply in, in, in sort of modern Twitter discourse, although that is obviously a concern, but, but more particularly in our own, uh, not our own personal circles, but in just you know, in, in sort of Christian circles in America. Uh, and we need to be really um, strong uh, and uh, confident in condemning that, uh, in naming it and identifying it. And, and we need to be shrewd enough, um, into, we need to be wise as serpents. We need to be shrewd enough to see it where it's happening and understand when people are trying to um, sort of pull, pull us to their side of that thing. Anytime someone's trying to replace one of our sacred words or concepts like the encyclical we talked about today uh, warned us, we need to be um, open to that. Uh, I mean, like wise to it, not actually obviously open to it, but wise to what's happening and be able to recognize it and point to it and say, no, that is not the gospel. That is a counterfeit. Um, so the same thing with anti-Semitism. With, with any of these, uh, these ideologies that come for our minds and try to warp and twist the gospel, we need to be able to say, no, that is not the gospel. That is a counterfeit. So that's why we want to talk about it with you today. Thanks, Andrew, for joining me for another discussion. This was, uh, this was a heavy one, but this was, I think, uh, I think good, and I'm glad we did it. Me too, Zach. Good one. Well, thanks for tuning in for another episode of Creedal. If you have any thoughts about what we missed, what you think we should have covered, uh, send me a note, Zach, Z-A-C at creedalpodcast.com. We'll be back next week with our regularly scheduled programming, all the segments, all your favorite segments. We'll be back then, including the close read, recommendations, and the misinformation stuff. So send us a note, though, Zach, Z-A-C, at creedalpodcast.com. And until next time, God bless you.